Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener here, you'll know that every month I do a live show, MK3D, at the BFI South Bank in London. But since lockdown, those shows have moved online. If you want to check them out, go to YouTube and search for the BFI channel or just search MK3D. Now, those shows tend to be guest-packed, but in video form, we only have an hour running time, so we have to cut our interviews down. A few weeks ago, we ran extended versions of my interviews with Shazir Mirza and Simon Pegg. But on this podcast, you're going to hear from the great Brian Cox, choosing a guilty pleasure. But let's start with Salvador Simo, director of Bunuel in the Labyrinth of the Turtles. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show uh, Salvador Simo. Uh, Salvador, where, where are we speaking to you from? Where are you? Well, now, uh, at this moment, I'm in Madrid. This is where I'm living now and also working. So, yeah, Madrid. And how have things been for you during the recent months, during the, the coronavirus outbreak? Well, it, it's been very busy because uh, right now I'm working in a, in a CG animated movie, uh, commissioned feature film. It's a co-production between Spain and China. So when all this started, we sent everyone to work at home. And uh, so we had, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 people working from home. So... It was very intense. I mean, all these days were very intense, very long days. So for me, it was uh, working more than ever. So I didn't have time to get bored or just to do things at home. It's even worse. So presumably, I mean, animation and and effects work, VFX work, that has managed to carry on during everything because that's something that can be done in isolation. Yeah, I mean, nowadays when we have the, the, the advantage of the technology of the Zoom and other uh, technologies that allowed us to speak uh, uh, remotely and also to work remotely. I mean, if we had this maybe five years ago, six years ago, it would be more complicated. But uh, yeah, we are we're lucky. So. Now, Salvador, your film is now on BFI Player. Um, it's uh, it's an extraordinary movie about Bunuel's creation of an extraordinary movie. Um, tell us a little bit about the story and and the graphic novel upon which the film is based. Well, uh, the graphic novel of Fermin Solis, it, it talks a little bit about um, that event that was filming Las Urdes. Uh, but... As it is a graphic novel, the, the timing, the way to tell the story, it's different. I mean, it's a different media. 
So it's a different story after all. I mean, the, 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 in the graphic novel, there is a moment where basically most of it, it's them talking and walking. So you cannot do this in a film. So when we got the, the graphic novel, Eligio and me, what we did is we read the graphic novel and then we close it. We put it down and we say, okay, now we have to start to work. And then we make our own story. I mean, based, of course, on some ideas that were there. But we make our own investigation. We talk with uh, Ian Gibson, who is a, a great biographer of, of Buñuel, also with Carrier. We talk with many people that had met uh, Buñuel. Even we had the, the great uh, fortune to meet uh, several times Juan Luis Buñuel, who was alive in that time. And he helped us a lot with many of his his own life uh, stories and also about his father and understanding the the great uh, and deep feeling that was between him and Ramon Athin, who was a, a dear friend. And um, so all of that kind of drives us to find out what was really the story. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can tell the story about, okay, Luis Buñuel is going to film Las Urdes. But this movie, it's more about a friendship story. It talks about these uh, two friends, Ramon Athin and Luis Buñuel. And for me, it was very surprising, the, 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 the kicking event that it's when Ramon Athin tell him uh, they were at night, probably after few wines, and he told him, no worry if... I win the lottery, I will pay you the, the, the documentary. And then a few months later, for real, that's a real story, he won the lottery and he kept his word and he gave him the money to make the film. And my first reaction it was, well, nowadays, I don't know if many people will keep his word. But then <laughs> a few seconds later, I thought, no, no, wait, wait, wait. We will be surprised of how many people actually will keep his word. Yeah. Because we, all of us, we know people around us that they will keep his word. And that is what represents a little bit Ramon Athin, no? the good people in the world. The, and he was called a good man no? in, in Huesca, no? So at the end, he was, he become not just a supporting character. He's also become the protagonist of the movie. No? There's a lovely detail when he, when he rings to, to, to tell Bunuel that he's, that he's won the lottery and he, and he's going to go through with funding the film. And Bunuel says, Oh, I, I can't believe it. And he says, yes, well, my wife would never forgive me if I didn't. And he immediately cuts to his wife chasing him out of the house saying, why are you giving this money to Bunuel? Also, <laughs> Of course, it's such a strange project, the idea of Bunuel filming what was technically a documentary, although, as we all know, there's a great difference between Bunuel doing a documentary and anyone else doing a documentary. For people who haven't seen the Bunuel film, can you describe what that film is like? Because I, there's a famous British director who described it as the most disturbing movie he had ever seen. Well, it's a way. I, I will. I will say that in that moment, that documentary, that documentary, but it was a slap in the face to the people, to the audience. And I think right now it's a way to see a film, a, a cineast, a, a film director, a, a creator, uh, representing the reality 
to the audience. He actually thinks about the audience much more than we can realize because the way he edit, the way he worked the documentary is to create some feelings to the audience. And that's why it's so touching because everything is, is really thought in that moment. No? So that the way well, there is one moment that we see uh, some peak uh, kind of like um, uh, bathing in a small river in the middle of the village. And then later on, we see some kids in a different cot drinking what it seems that is the same water that the peak was, was bathing. Of course, it was not the same water, but he tries to tell you the story. And, and for him, it was, at least here in Spain, it was uh, called uh, a liar because what he was saying, say, oh, that's not true. He manipulated the reality. But actually what he did is a recreation of the reality. Is what some, there is a moment in the film that he says, is what I'm doing. I'm doing a recreation of the reality. This is like this. I mean, and it was like this. It was for real. We, we work over what he used as a script. He had a book that uh, from Maurice Legendre. It was a French humanist who spent many years in Las Urdes and he made a treatise, a thesis, about 300, 400 pages. And we had this book. And what it tells in that book is even worse than what Buñuel did. But he tried to represent that space, that uh, the, the, the daily life of all these people in 30 minutes. I mean, I always, uh, I, when I talk about these things and people question his way of making a documentary, I always ask people, well, we sure all we saw a documentary of National Geographic where we see the small mouse in the middle of the forest in the night with his small nut and suddenly a snake comes and eats the mouse. So we as an audience, we imagine, okay, maybe the, the guy who's filming, he stood in the middle of the forest for weeks without moving, waiting that small mouse just passing in front of the camera, catch this image. And then suddenly also there is a snake that it came this at and it eats this mouse in front of the camera. Of course, that was not true. It was, everything was a stage, but that doesn't mean that it was not real. So that's what Buñuel did. He made it all of that in the most powerful way. He represented that reality and he made this film. And he tried to change the world with that film. And that was his intention to, to show that at 300 kilometers from the capital of Spain, Madrid, there was this place where people were actually hungry and dying from uncountless sickness. Uh, so that's what he tried to to denounce with, with, with that film. Uh, tell me about using the, the live action clips, because what happens is obviously we see, um, you know, in animation, we see the film crew arriving and then we see little flashes of what they're filming, which are the live action stuff that been well filmed. Tell me about using that with the animation. Did you ever consider animating it or had you always planned to use those clips? Well, that was a, a, an early decision. I mean, that we did at the beginning with the producer, Manuel Cristobal, because we thought that we had this material that it was gold and it was no better way to represent what was happening than the same images that Buñuel recorded in 1932. So we tried to, to find a, a grammatic of the film 
in the way of using these 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 images. So every time the characters that are filming this documentary, they look through the camera, we see the images that Buñuel recorded. So it's like when you have a, a you want to show what the characters are looking at or what the characters are filming, then we saw it through the eyes of Buñuel. Except two times that is just through the eyes of Buñuel. So, but everything it has a, a reason. It's, it's like a grammatic, a poetry. So that in, in the way there is these images, sometimes it's through the camera, sometimes it's not. Because at the end, the, the camera isn't just a way of saying the eyes of Buñuel, but sometimes it's more direct than, and sometimes it's less. And uh, that it's allowed us to, to play with it, to play with that. And also that it brings the film to the ground. It's almost like, okay, there is no question that that happened. If we had drawn these images, the audience would say, ah, these guys, they just draw this thing and this is a fantasy movie. But we try to make a movie uh, that it's real, it feels real. Even with all the art, all the technique of animation, everything was trying to, to be um, married with the story. It works with the story. The, the, the lines of the drawings are broken because the story is a tough story. The animation is not like the typical cartoony animation that we see. It's more naturalistic, giving time to the audience to connect with the characters. So everything was, was thought to work with these moments and that we have the real images. And then that it leave, it leave a space to go up with the movie to other places, with the dreams and the, his imagination. And the story keeps real because it has a good anchor points that are these uh, parts of the, of, the, of the documentary of Buñuel. One of the things that happens during that story is the tension between Buñuel and the good man, um, who, who says to him, look, you know, you're being cruel. The donkey is suffering um, there's the the stuff with the chicken in which they want to show something, but they won't do it themselves. There is a lot of cruelty involved in what Benwell is filming. Do you agree? It was 1920, well, 1930, the beginning of the, 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 the last, it's almost one, 100 years ago. The society was different. I mean, if you try to talk about animal rights in that time, no one is going to listen to you. No one, everyone, everywhere in the world, no one is going to consider even the, the, the animal rights. I mean, right now we evolve, but we, we, we should never forget where we come from. And that's why we try to do it without any kind of sweetener. So this is as it was. So it's cruel, yes, but that's what's real. And that was also part of the culture of Buñuel. In one of his books, he says that actually was real that his father brought him to see the 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 dead body of the donkey in the forest in the in the field and then he was so impressed he was impressed because the vultures they came yes and then 20 when he was 22 he wanted to see the vultures again so he took a gun he killed a donkey and he waited for the vultures and the vultures didn't came so for him, it was something a little bit deceiving. But later on, when he uh, recorded Las Urdes, he read it, that, uh, and it's, it's, it's written in the book of, of Legendre, that actually the, 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 
the hives of bees, they were transported by, by these donkeys through the mountain to other villages to sell. And uh, once in a while, it's true that the hives fall down, they broke up, and then all the bees come wild and they kill not just the donkey, they also kill the man the, who was... Uh, so fortunately, Buñuel just made the story with the donkey, but, but he thought uh, that for him it was necessary to show, show this cruelty because that it was also was making react the audience. And that if you see all the movies of Buñuel, there is always something that kind of like make the audience react, the stand-up of the, of the chair. No? That's a little bit his style. No? So and we, wanted, we wanted to keep that, to keep his, his um, a little bit his flair about the way he, he tells the story. No? There's a lot of harshness in the story, but the animation is really beautiful. I mean, I, when I was watching it, I was reminded, I'm, I'm sure you've been told this before, but I was reminded of watching Chico and Rita and the, you know, the, the beauty of the way the characters move, the naturalism of it, the thing which, tell me something about the animation style and what you, uh, you know, where you took inspiration from. Well, um, I mean, of course, I mean, I always take inspiration about uh, on animation and live action, but for us, the way we wanted to make the animation was very uh, naturalistic and very content. So we didn't want two characters to overact. Mm -hmm. All the opposite, to put the brakes on the animators and just keep the characters moving as less as possible. And then uh, we had Manolo Galeana as animation director, who also was the animation director of Chico and Rita. And then we talked about how we can do this thing work and how we can feel this animation different. And normally the, the animation, even Chico Rita and all the, the classicals, uh, you see that you have one drawing for maybe each frame or each two frames. And that is what the retinian persistence, it makes you feel the, the sweetness on the, on the movement. But here we did it on threes and fours. And that means that every drawing was three or four frames. Uh, uh, shot. Yeah. So that makes the, the motion a little bit more, a tiny bit of stagger. So it's almost like it's dirty, but it's what the story is telling you. The story is not a, a sweet story. It needs this, this kind of style because also it works with the style of the, of the, of the art because the style, the style of the art, the characters are sometimes very stylized and they have contrast with the backgrounds. So we need that the, the characters, they have this way of moving that integrated everything. When you, um, when you watch the film with an audience, are you surprised by audience reactions to it? Because I, I started watching the movie and I, I know something about Bunuel. And, uh, and at first it's, it's very light and very funny. And then they start talking about the darkness of the project. And actually it's quite, it's very interesting that there's this tension between the beauty of, of the animated images and the darkness of the story that is being told. And also the fact that we actually know what's going to happen to the central character, the good character. We know what fate he is going to meet. So there is this great thread of darkness underlying the whole thing. How do audiences react when you, when you watch the film with them? Well, I mean, it's always surprising. And I think it's the best part to, to, for me, it's the best prize always. I mean, when you see the the film with the audience and they and you see them laugh when when they have to lead, to laugh, 
and even sometimes where they don't have to. But that creates a reaction then later on the audience is like, oh, I shouldn't have been laughing. So mm-hmm. it, it's very interesting. And then later on, of course, the reaction on the, on the, on the dark events, it's, it's more, um, well, it, it's, it's, it's driven to that. So it's more expected. No? But for me, I, I always, um, I mean, I, I always tell the same story. I mean, Jorge Usson, who was the actor who, Put the voice of Buñuel uh, because we, the voices, we acted the voices. We didn't record it. We acted yeah. them. And he was an incredible actor. But I think it was almost the third or the fourth time that I was seeing the movie with him. And the last time I saw him, he was sitting on my side and he was crying at the end. And I was saying, Jorge, but you know how it's going to end. I cannot avoid it. So it's it somehow it it takes you to a place that it told you because it's Ramon because it's it's someone that didn't deserve that. Do you do you think of the film as being political? No, I don't think it's it's about being political or not. I mean, everyone can take his own conclusions. No? That is the facts. I mean, I don't try to judge why anything. Uh, when Buñuel acted the way he acted, he acted because uh, he had some background that was making him react in a, in, in, in a peculiar way. And there is sometimes in the film that we hate him and sometimes we love him. So about the, the what it could be the political approach, I try to just be as... Um, as cold as possible in the way that it doesn't distort what is what is more important, that is the friendship story. I mean, for me, what I felt more touching and more, when I really, I was thinking that I was really emotional is, is what Buñuel must, must be thought, uh, feeling on that moment where he's forced to take away the name of his friend yeah. to release the film. So it's 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 a decision that he probably if his friend was there he was going to tell him please take him away but the most important thing is the film but for him it was his friend that was killed just little before so I don't know I mean what was going through his mind or his heart in that moment but it must be it must it must have been really really yeah. strong feelings I mean the reason I ask you is because there's a couple of um there's a couple of scenes in the film. We see the audience reacting to large door and hating it. And we see, you know, we see Bunuel watching the audience, watching the film. And we hear, you know, fascist communist. We hear these terms thrown around, you know, in a almost random fashion. And uh, I just wondered whether, you know, when you're, when you're doing those scenes, whether they, they speak to you personally, the idea of watching the audience, watching your film and how, what they take from it. Exactly. Because I mean, the thing is like, you can see the same thing from two different points and maybe we were going to, one was going to see blue, the other one is going to see red. And in that moment, that film, it was done to provoke the audience and for him, the, the religion, it was something that it was very intense on his life. Even he was always been, he was saying for himself that he was agnostic, but 
if you see all the films of Buñuel, religion is something really, really important because it was in his background, in his life, in his childhood. And people must be reading that, certain people must be reading that in one way, other people must be reading that in another way. That's why you can see there is comments of fascists and there is comments of communists. Because, I mean, it's really important. That's not the, the point. That's actually, he didn't want to. Uh, he was always playing with the maybe being communist, maybe not being communist. He was never actually, he was more worried about making react the audience. I mean, mm -hmm. make the audience question things. No, I mean, that, I mean, people at that time, they were, they were used to, I mean, I will say maybe at this time, we are also somehow used to assume things, you know, that, that this is true or, okay, we have to believe it. And in that time, what Bonuel was saying, okay, just make yourself questions. Don't assume that anything is like they are telling you. Just make the audience thought. And that was, at the end, what all his films, they do. I mean, they make the audience think. There is, you see, there is, uh, in his movies, there is always something that it's kind of like, questioning you and, and why is that and that's maybe a metaphor and that's me and then somehow that drives you to the to the movie no it's you, then you start to analyze the movie and then you start to think and then you're going to question the society you're going to question many things and then you can have any opinion that you want but what is important is that you you actually think you don't just okay they told me this so it's like this no just question things and then make your own decisions Salvador, thank you very much. That's a lovely note to end on. Um, uh, congratulations on the film. It's available now on uh, BFI Player. And uh, I know you, I know that you've, you're a visitor to the BFI when you're over here. I know yeah. it has a place in your heart. And so we look forward to being, to being back in there as soon as possible. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure for me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My thanks to Salvador Simo. If you'd like to see a video of that interview, then go to YouTube and check out the BFI channel on YouTube or just search MK3D. There are a selection of shows up there. Now, it's with great pleasure that I welcome my next guest, picking a particularly brilliant guilty pleasure, the great Brian Cox. 
So, Brian, uh, welcome to the show. Lovely to have you on this, albeit virtually. Tell me where you are, because at the moment your backdrop looks like you're either in space or in the Highlands. No, I'm not in the Highlands. I'm in uh, upstate New York. Um, I, this is my backdrop. I don't know why. I can't, I, I'm sure I could switch it off, but it, it's, A, I haven't got my glasses, so I can't see. <laughs> so, but it actually looks quite nice. <laughs> it does. It's very picturesque. Right. And... Uh, and uh, is so you you're in upstate New York. Yeah. Is that are we you were, in your we were home? In, I was in London and directing a play with my wife, and then because uh, I sort of go between London and, and, and the states, and then I came back uh, to find that New York was in a pretty dire situation. So we hopped in the car, and luckily enough, we have this lovely house up in the country, which we don't get a chance to finish. Uh, visit very often but we actually got a chance to visit it uh, now and we've been here since March the 13th and how are you managing how how's lockdown it's okay I mean it's it's very good it's lovely to watch the seasons I mean uh, I'm surrounded by forests so when I came here there was not a leaf on a tree but just watching everything come to fruition and uh, we saw well we didn't but uh, there was a bear scene just down the road from where we are today. Yeah. And so there are black bears and uh, all wow. kinds of wildlife here. Deer, of course. You have to watch the ticks because of the Lyme disease. But it's, mm-hmm. um, it's really rather beautiful. It's really rather stunning. And it's actually a glorious day today. It's absolutely glorious. So, um, and yeah, and it's tougher on our boys. You know, we have a boy who's 18. Two boys, we have one who's uh, 15 and one who's 18. Now, he's our 18-year-old who should be graduating, but unfortunately, he won't be. Um, uh, I mean, there'll be a virtual graduation, and he's actually at, a, yeah. he's at the Frank Sinatra School of the Performing Arts, so he's actually rehearsing a play at the moment, which he may or may not do, which is a great right. shame. Um, but he's, going, he's got himself into Brooklyn College, which is a great... He's doing anthropology and drama, which is a wonderful... Uh, two course thing that they do. It's a great school, Brooklyn College, and it's 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 a it's actually a public school, public school um, kind of school, public yeah. in the sense of in the American, the American sense of public, sense meaning public, public, as opposed to the, the, the UK public. sense in which public means private. Exactly. Yeah. So that <laughs> that's been good, and then our youngest is doing online schooling, and he's a he's a gamer, so he's on the he's on the whatnot all the time you know so that is a little bit <laughs> tricky and to say the least but uh, on the whole he's um you know it's uh, it's it's tough my wife thrives she does she does yoga classes she does uh three yoga classes kundalini yoga classes a week so she does that and she gets something like about 50 people you know who come in from she does it on facebook and, and uh, instagram and she's a very good wow. teacher so she does that and lots and then we've been doing all kinds of things like this. Uh, I've been doing poetry. I've been doing, I did a virtual film, uh, which was a first, I think, where we filmed in six countries uh, here, London. No, not six, three countries here, London and Denmark. And uh, yeah. we did a virtual film produced by Maggie Monteith. And we had three wonderful female directors who directed it. And, uh, 
it had Clay's bang in it. So it was a really interesting because it was called the Agrophobic Detective Society. Was that, I, I presume that was put together as a result oh, yeah. of lockdown yeah, yeah. happening. Look, it wasn't something. I mean, yeah, fine, there's yeah. a lot of extraordinary things happening in lockdown. There's a lot of, uh, there's a wonderful writer called Richard Nelson, who's been doing these plays called the Apple plays, which came to Britain briefly and played in Brighton, I believe. And they're wonderful plays. And they're really about present history. You know, he started with 9-11. And they're kind of sort of a fairly democratic family. Uh, and he just yeah. did this one called Things We Talk About, which was about the lockdown. And it was sensational. And again, it was done from the public theater, but I had about 35,000 viewers, which is quite amazing. So you're managing to stay really productive by the sound of it, because there are some you, people... Mark, I, mean, I am more busy. I mean, I'm dying to get back to work, to be honest with you. So I can go and sit in my trailer for five minutes. <laughs> no, it's been really... It's been, you know, people say, could you do this? Can you do that? We did a gala the other night for Mums Against Poverty. Uh, we did that. We, oh, we've done all kinds of things. And my wife, of course, my wife and I both suffer from the same disease. We can't say no. It's... Uh, no isn't a word that um, apparently it's my Irish ancestry because the Irish never say no. They'll say, ah, oh, well, ah, sure, ah, but, you know, <laughs> but never know. And so I, I'm, and I'm caught with that. that, heritage, so heritage. Is that, that, that makes me worry that that's how we persuaded no, you to come I, to the Shetland you, Film Festival I always, in that case. I would have no problem <laughs> at all. That is not, well, you mustn't be worried about that. At all. And also what we're about to talk about is, uh, is my guilty secret. And I love my guilty yes. secret. Yeah, so you're. We, this is um. This is the moment in which I ask you know somebody to to choose, and, and there's been a lot of discussion about whether whether there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure because most people say, look, I'm not guilty. No, about I'm not it. guilty about it. it. You're, I'm not guilty. Except your choice. Except in the, your choice is right. No, so I was going to say, except that other people go, really, <laughs> you know, you know, but I'm not guilty. Okay, so what is your guilty pleasure choice, Brian? My guilty pleasure choice, and I actually worked out why it was. Um, was uh, is the court jester by uh, Frank and Panama, um, Melvin Frank and I think Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, who were great, great directors, wonderful comic directors, and it's a sensational script, very funny, and Danny Kay, who is I just I have a huge, huge. I mean, Walter Mitty, you know, did a remake of it was totally awful with Ben Stiller, but, you know, the original is just fantastically brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's just, he has this elegance and this zaniness at the same time. I, I, I just love I, Danny Kaye. And in this film, you see him at his best. You see him in all his range as a dancer, as a comic, as a singer, you know, and uh, also nice songs. And his wife, Sylvia Fine, wrote the lyrics for a lot of these songs. And I think it's Sammy Khan who actually writes the music in this. So it's, it's, a, it's a joyous film. And it's a film that I put on whenever I'm feeling low and I, I, I want a good laugh, I always put on the court jester. And then I realized the other day, it just, it just occurred to me the other day, you know, my dad died at the beginning of 1955, and I was a sad wee boy for a long time. And this film yeah. came out in 1955. So I think that this may have been the first film that I suddenly enjoyed again after, oh, wow. after, the, after okay, the death so of my father. So they sent for a witch with a terrible twitch to ask how my future impressed her. She took one look at me. 
and cried, <laughs> What else could he be but a jester? A jester? A jester? A funny idea, a jester. No butcher, no baker, no candlestick maker, and me with the look of a fine undertaker impressed her as a jester? So you have a sort of a restorative memory of it. You have a, you have an experience of it as being a film that, that restores yeah, absolutely. your spirit. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the sequences are just. I mean, you asked me to pick some sequences. I mean, I could have gone on. There's so many sequences I could have picked. <laughs> you know, I'm spot for choice on that one. And I, I just, it's just a delight. It's just a delightful film. And there's great performances like Cecil Parker as King Roderick. It's just, I just love Cecil Parker. He makes me laugh. Danny, of course, Clintus Johns, Basil Rathbone doing Basil Rathbone. And then also, also, there is some of also the worst acting as well, which is from some of the extras playing rather in their tights with no, no legs at all, looking kind of just strange. You know, I've kind of got the odd line here and there, and you go, really? <laughs> now, just if, 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 for the possibility that somebody hasn't seen it, I remember seeing it when I was a kid, but I must have seen it on television. And um, I've seen it a few times because I, I realized, um, you know, when they were doing... Um, <clears throat> You know the the thing, the thing with the poison is oh, in the vessel with the pestle and all that. I, I, okay, fine. So I know you know. So I thought, okay, so I must have seen this. So it must have been on television a few times when I was young. But for anyone who hasn't seen it, what's the basic setup of the court? Jester? Well, the basic setup is it's set at a sort of fictitious time. Uh, there's this usurping king called Roderick, um, <laughs> who never existed, and. Uh, it's. I think it's all filmed in California. Actually, uh, it looks sort of it looks like, like lovely it. like Cornwall, but I think it's California. <laughs> and uh, there's this infant who is the real uh, heir to the throne. Glynis Johns and, and Danny has to dress as this. Um, he dresses this kind of old man, and they're trying to smuggle the child across this particular area. And yeah. they get stopped by the king's men, and they get. Uh, the the he's still he's okay, but the the girl gets taken. But on the way, they meet this um, character called Giacomo, who is about to be the king's jester, and he's uh, played by John Carradine. So you've got these wonderful you know John Carradine, wonderful wonderful yeah. actor. So John Carradine's there and flamboyant plays this Giacomo, who's supposed to go off, and he's now the new jester to the king. So uh, they. <laughs> They, Danny, well, or actually Glynis knocks him out and says, you can pretend to be Giacomo. And, and of course, <laughs> Danny being a habitual coward because, whoa, 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 you know, sort of starts to fall apart. He said, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. But then she gets taken and they get separated. So he has to go. And there's a, there's a song that he has to sing, which is, I can't do it. Then the guy who's the contact, who's called Fergus, he, he gets in between these, these knights played by John, uh, uh, Basil Rathbone, gets in between him, and they, it's mistaken identity. So they, he thinks, oh, these, these are the guys that I've got to deal with, not the real guy. And they think, oh, this is, um, this is the jester, who's actually an assassin as well, which he doesn't know about. 
So it all goes from there. And then there's Angela Lansbury, who plays the, and she, yeah. she plays the, the, the king's daughter and takes it. And then there's wonderful, wonderful Mildred Natwick, or Mildred Dunnick. Mildred Natwick, I think, not Dunnick. There's always two Mildreds, I was getting confused. I think it's Mildred Natwick. And she plays Griselda. The, the kind of witch, and who eventually hypnotizes Danny to do certain things that da Danny can't do, like fence. So, and that mm. happens on the snap of her fingers. Like, so he, he fences, and if anybody snaps a finger, he loses control, and then snaps back and he's back. <laughs> and, of course, there's a lot of this quick fire, and wonderful, wonderful Panama Frank. I mean, they're just amazing. And then eventually uh, he, he has to... <laughs> <laughs> he has to, uh, through a long series of circumstances, the, um, she's the Griselda, who is the young princess's sort of handmaiden or kind of mother figure or something, you know, she's, she, she says, cause she says, you've got to tell me, you know, you're going to, I, 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 I'm, I, I've got to meet the person I love. I, I don't know the person I love. And so Danny appears and she points to him and she said, that's the guy. And he goes, Oh, okay. And, and she, she starts following with him. And then he of course doesn't, isn't aware of all this and then gets involved. And then he has to, he, he gets challenged. So Griswold of McElwain arrives from the North challenges Danny. So he has to go through this amazing sequence where he gets knighted, which is, again, <laughs> incredibly comic. And then what happens is that, um, you know, he's knighted. And then we have the famous scene where, and it's, it's so brilliant. There's two gags that go on at the same time. There's, okay. there's, there's the pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle and the chalice with the palace is the brood. It is true. And it starts off with the pellet with the poisons and the flagon with the dragon. Well, they break the flagon with the dragon, so they have to switch it to the chalice with the palace. And, and of course, this is Griselda, and he's got to memorize all this. In the meantime, lightning strikes his armor, and his armor becomes magnetic. So while he's doing this, he's, his bits of metal are flying off him. And it's just... It's just a joy. It's an absolute joy of a movie. The knights will approach each other. The pellet with the poison is in the flagel with the chalice. Poison is in the dragon with the pestle. Uh, the chasel is in the poisley with the flagless with the flam the flagless. The pellet with the dragons and the pestle with the poison. The, the pestle with the poison is dragon the flagel with the flagel. The poisley with the flagel is the flagel with the poisley. The chalice with the flagon with the chalice. The poison with the flagon is the chalice with the poison. The knights will face the king. They will approach the royal pavilion. One of the things that people forget about it is that it was a flop when it opened. I mean, it cost something like four million and it took two. And now it's on the National Registry. Now it is kind of accepted as a, as a classic. But when it first opened, it was very, very expensive. And it failed at the box office. Um, is, is part of the charm of the film, and you, you talk about it as a guilty pleasure, is part of the charm the fact that it wasn't a hit, but then people found it for themselves? Yeah. I mean, I love your story about it having a very personal meaning for you. Well, I think that was, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, as a, as a I would have been, yeah, my dad died when I was eight, but he died in March when I was 
I didn't, this is the first time I've heard that it was, it didn't make any money, you know, but uh, I think it's a classic. I really do think it's a classic. And so you, you, you chose a number of sequences that some, many of which you've just waltzed us through, <laughs> particularly the, the fantastic, but anything else that particularly stands out for you other than, I mean, for, from my point of view, I think the thing that's most remarkable about it is what I love about Danny Kaye is I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of physical acting and song and dance and slapstick, which I think gets very much looked down yes. upon now, particularly critically. And if you go back to the trailer for um, The Court Jester, one of the things that the trailer says is it shows you Danny Kaye doing all the things that you thought he couldn't do, the full range of his... And actually, it is an extraordinary performance. It's a physical performance. performance. It's a musical performance. It's, you know... It's it's the full range, and it's also it, and it's surprisingly full of bathos, you know, mm-hmm. because of his he's he he doesn't feel that he's up to much as a person. He just feels that he's you know because he's just this guy who does reveals the baby's bottom, you know, and then looks after the baby. And of course, there's, there's you realise there are bits of other films that've been thrown in, like that whole end sequence is very like the end sequence in Robin Hood. You know, it's very very similar to when Robin comes in to to meet uh, King John and and Sir Guy Gisborne or the Sheriff of Nottingham. You know, it's very similar yeah. to the the standoff with. And of course, um, you know, it does help that you've got Basil Rathbone in both situations. <laughs> Have you seen it? regularly is it something that you just kind of go back well, to i saw it the other night i watched it again and i watched it with my wife and it was just compulsive you 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 start and you go this is a silly film and once you accept its silliness it's a delight and they play it to the hilt you know they, they don't apologize for it they just do it and but that stuff that stuff is i mean that's pure marx brothers yeah. to me that's absolute yeah. uh, you know quick fire uh, you know gibberish that's right. in, a, in a way which is really really hard to yeah. do no i i i i just it's just it's it's a i mean i realized this the other night i was looking at the date and i thought 1955 and I, and i realized why i had such a connection with the film because it was a it was a pretty black year for me that year yeah, and uh, i just thought wow that 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 was there, and I saw it. And I know the cinema I saw it, it was the, the Royal I saw it, which was uh, in, uh, I, you know, in my hometown, there used to be 21 cinemas in my hometown. And uh, the Broadway and the Royal, which were my cinemas, literally kitty corner to one another. Broadway was here, the Royal was here. And in my church, my Catholic church was there, the library was there, there was the Broadway, and on the other side of the street was the Royal. And then this big iron foundry where I used to play, it was when I played as a kid. And I, and of course it was double features and it was uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, change program, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and you saw as many as eight films in a week. And I went, yeah. I saw them all yeah. <laughs> from the age of about, you know, from about the age of, from the age of about six, you know, I was constantly going to the pictures. Welcome Giacomo. We have come to escort you to the castle. We- haven't we met before? Uh, it's not very likely, my good man. You see, I'm uh, on my way back from the Italian court. I'll speak you the king's English with no trace of accent. Uh, my dear sir, Giacomo is the master of many, many tongues indeed. French. Je le dois sauteur, je le parle sauteur au teflard, le fleur, je le patasse au romantique. Je le passe toi, romantique, je le patois. Italian. Porto le vende, le sorto le basta. Alla forza le vende, le sende le barda. Alla forza le vonda. 
German. Was haben Sie ausgehalten? Das Knei wieder haben, das Schmerzen wieder Hülle Knei schmerzen, das Knei wieder haben. Haben Sie geflogen, die Helm in Walzkeil? Hast du geflogen, das Walz in die Knei wieder hülsen? Which means in any language, why tarry? Let us off to the castle. Off to the castle. Off to the castle. Do you have any thoughts about us all getting back into cinemas any time in well, the near future? I think that, you see, I think that it's a complicated question, Mark, because I do think that the cinema has lost its way. I don't mean in terms of the making of the films. They're great. It's in the presentation of the films. I mean, I think the cinemaplexes are they're sort of like cattle things, you know. They're, they haven't got the same... You know, when I was a boy, you, you went to the cinema and there was something special about it. There was something special about you. The, and there was, a, of course, there was a wonderful Kiora lady who had a little tray of ice creams and, and, and pop and the orange juice and stuff. And all of that, you know, uh, I mean, all of that, that whole wonderful way. I mean, they're trying to get back to that now with some, you know, where they get, there's a, a, a group of cinemas and you're called the Alamo cinemas, you know, where people, the yeah. people run around and said, what do you want? You want a, you want a hamburger? <laughs> what do you want? You want I mean, they're sort of running past you as you're trying to watch the movie. And it's quite comical really, but they haven't quite got it right. But I, I just think that we've got to a point now where the, 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 the audience itself is, is treated slightly contemptuously. You know, and I, I want I want to get back to a cinema that is more embracing of the whole experience. I mean, you see it when you go to great cinemas like that wonderful cinema in Notting Hill, you know, which I've been to see several stuff in. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know it can be done. And, it's, it, it, and if you're going to do small, but do small, but do it on a scale which isn't sort of, um, what's the word, uh, you know, like churning it out, you know. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that people are going to, I mean, whether the cinemas are multiplex chains or the kind of thing that you're talking about, I mean, one of my favourite cinemas is the Phoenix in East Finchley or the, the oh, yeah. Plaza in Truro. But do, you, but do you think that audiences are going to want to go back into cinemas because of everything that's happened? Well, with, I think... You know, we've all become so so terrified of being around other people. I, you're in I lockdown, think, I'm, we're all in isolation. I, I think there are a few people, of course, who, of course, are expressing the opposite of that. They are feeling... They're, they're, they're rightly feeling, and though I disagree with them, and you know, because at this time we do have to exercise social distance, but it's not going to last yeah. forever. You know, it, it, we, we, will, we will move to another plane. But I think that the lesson to be learned now is to how we embrace that new plane and what we take from this experience to that new experience, of, yeah. and particularly in the community art form, you know, theater and everything else. It's, it's, it's interesting that television has so much stolen a march on everything. You know, the, the streaming services have stolen a march. And uh, a, one of the great things about television is, is, is the kind of the form of the long form of writing where you can develop something yeah. over a... So I'm watching a lot of great stuff at the moment, like a, a little French... There's a thing called the French Village, which is a whole thing about Vichy France, which is fascinating. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff coming from Europe. There's a, a show called Rita from, uh, from Denmark. And so you're getting a lot of people... And people are watching these shows. That's the other thing. People are going. They're, there's a sort of hunger because people love to be entertained. I mean, I've got yeah. friends of mine who never, ever normally watch television. And suddenly, in this situation, they'll, 
they look forward to their evening. They watch it on their, they didn't have a television, they watch it on their computer. But it's become a ritual for them that in the night, that's what they do. They watch, they, husband and wife, they sit and they watch it now. And I do think that there, there is something, that's the magical aspect of the cinema for me, was that darkened room, the lights going down, you know, and uh, then watching a double feature, you know, going in at six o'clock in the evening and you got out at 11 because it was double feature. Yeah. And then you rush yeah, yeah. to beat the queen. You know, because they used to just play the national anthem. And we used to say, come on, let's get the hell out of here before they start <laughs> doing that. There's, there's a famous episode of Dad's Army, which when they're all in the cinema and it ends with, they start the national anthem and Captain Mannering stands up and everyone just goes bang and they all just run over him and then he comes out the end hats all on sideways. Let me ask you one, one, one last thing. This is slightly off topic, but, you know, you're there, you're in upstate New York, and, you know, you're a well-traveled person, uh, Brian, and you're somebody whose political opinions have often been very vociferous. I wonder if you, um, if you would like to offer a comment on how the American presidency is currently handling everything. He's, he's taken this uh, drug now, you know, which everybody said is very, very dangerous. And whether he's taken it or not, whether he's lying, I mean, I mean, he's a kind of, it's, it's, it's pathetic. I mean, the man is pathetic. I mean, he's lying. He's, you know, I don't know how anybody can believe him anymore. And he's clearly lost the plot. I mean, just the way he's behaving. And even his language, he sometimes loses things. He, goes, blah, 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 blah. he, he literally goes like that now. So I, I, I think, um, I think, you know, dementia is looming, <laughs> which will be a blessing in disguise in this case. But it's just, it's just, you see, in a country this size, where you need some sense of unity, you need some sense. You know, there are. There are, you know, Cuomo's done a great job here in New York. And in fact, I'm in an area now where there's very, very, there's very few. They're in the, they're in the single figures, the amount of yeah. uh, COVID, uh, COVID-inflicted people. And I, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that this, you know, this, this notion of civil rights, which I find that people do not understand what civil rights mean. They think it's my rights. But no, it's the rights of our, the civil public. For we have, to be, we have to be cognizant of one another. You know, that's what yeah. it's there for. That's why it's civil rights. It's not just, it's not a selfish idea. I mean, one of the great problems of the American Constitution, I think, is this idea of, and it's in the Constitution, the pursuit of happiness. What yeah. does that mean? You know, and and when you get somebody like Trump, who behaves towards a kind of the notion of what America is, but it's it's not real. It's just not real. It's 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 a fantasy, you know. And and he he lives a kind of in a fantasy world, and of course he is he's such a liar. And uh, and I'm kind of I mean I feel a little bit because he's you know he's half Scots. <laughs> you know, his mother came from the Western Isles. And of course, there's very little said about his mother. And there's a lot said about Fred, Fred Trump, you know, who sounds like a yeah, real piece yeah. of work. But I just think he's lost the plot. I mean, I think he really has lost the plot. And it's just, it's ridiculous to see on a daily basis. You know, and, and of course, the, the media, you know, the, the Jimmy Kimmel's and Stephen Colbert's, bless him, Bill Maher, you know, all those guys, they just go, this guy's an idiot. What are we doing? Why are we listening yeah. to him? You know. There was, 
there was a lovely interview some years ago with the great Scottish filmmaker Bill Forsyth, who said that if he ever wrote a character as two-dimensional as Trump, nobody would believe him. He said so the problem is, it's like if you write a villain, they have to have something about them that's redeeming. But he said, you look at Trump, it's like a, it's like a pantomime version of a that's villain. Right. There isn't anything else there other than malice and longing. Yeah, and it would be a lousy part to play. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's not a role that you no, would take on. I would on. say this is it's not good enough. It's two-dimensional. <laughs> <laughs> So now, so Brian, when you know when it's possible to get back to work, what are you doing next? Well, uh, I'm supposed got... to be doing the third season of Succession, uh, yeah, which is going fantastically incredibly well, well, incredibly successful, yeah, incredibly well, you know. And uh, you know, it's all written. Uh, Jesse's done. The writers' room is in London, actually. Uh, Jesse's done. He's a bit of a genius, as Jesse Armstrong. So he's got it all there. We, we've had a couple of Zoom meetings with everybody. I think we we'll probably have some more coming up. I mean, I don't know when we'll go. I'm not allowed to say when we'll go because we, nobody knows when we'll go. Uh, you know. Uh, but I mean, there are all kinds of measures being brought in in order because actually, the interested the, the thing is, they need product. You know, they haven't got stuff. You know, people people are running, people are seeing stuff at an enormous rate. So, you know, they are ready for us to go back. But when is a big question. And you've got the, the Ian Rankin adaptation coming up. When's that going to happen? I did that. That's done. That's delivered. It, it's all finished. Yeah, it was just a spray. It was a little piece of, it was Rebus in, uh, Rebus in, it's called Detention. It's Rebus in, in, in Lockdown you know, and how he's dealing with it, you know, and not very well. <laughs> Is it, I can, it is astonishing, Brian, how productive you, not just how productive you are now, but how productive you have managed to be throughout. I was looking back, I mean, I, you know, you and I have met and talked several yeah. times, and every time I meet you, there's been 15 things that you did since the last time we spoke. And if anything, you seem to get, you just said in lockdown, you're busier than you've ever been before. Uh, there's a part of me that thinks that you have a workaholic gene, yeah. that you actually, you, you wouldn't be happy if you, if you weren't. I love my job. But, you know. I really love my job, Mark, you know, and I, I, I feel very blessed. And I feel that, you know, after being, I mean, next year in... 2021, uh, Touchwood, if I'm still here, I will have been in the business for 60 years since I was 15. So I've, I've experienced oh. the whole gamut of it over, over 60 years of how it's, you know, and the great period, of course, still for me, the great period is the 60s. Because in for to be living in the UK, that, you know, and we haven't got that anymore, was that sense of social mobility, which was so phenomenal. And also somebody like me, uh, you know, widows, you know, with a widowed mother, uh, I got a grant. I got expenses. I mean, I did very well going to drama and I went to a drama school and I was taken care of. And that, and those were tighter times than we have now, you know, and yeah. the way we treat people, you know, the way we, the way we treat our citizens is just not acceptable. You know, that's why also why I've kind of, 
gone, you know, I, I was never, I don't like the word nationalist. I, I've never liked the word nationalist, but I, I have become more, more and more of a, a Scottish independent, more and more, you know, because I also think that Nicola does a great job. I look at her and I think she talks sense. Whenever she talks, she talks yeah. sense. And I think yeah. a lot of people are impressed by her. But well, when you were in uh, when you were in Shetland, you were you were there, sort of actively campaigning for the SNP and and uh, talking about these issues back then. Whenever, however many years ago it was back then, yeah. and actually, I think if anything, uh, I think that the the rep- uh, certainly Nicholas Sturgeon's reputation over the last few years has, if anything, oh, yeah. increased. Oh, yeah. Not least, not least, because of the chaos of what's happening in the rest of the bloody country. Well, exactly. You see, and I, I and I do think that, you know, I mean, as we say in Scotland, the pr- current prime minister is such a balloon, you know, and he doesn't learn anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what does it explain that expression, Brian? I've never heard a that. Balloon. Such a balloon. What, yeah, he's a balloon. Yeah, was it? It's <laughs> a very Scottish one. Oh, the man's a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he is, you know, and you think, this is a man who was near death. Did you not learn anything? You know, did, did, was, did nothing, yeah. did no penny drop? And he's, and he's so, and he's overriding ambition, also precludes every kind of, you know, he's, this man is not going to have a, a Damascus moment. And yet yeah. he's been given, he's been given something. You go, didn't you know? Didn't you get it? So Brian, if next if next year is your, are you doing something for your sixty years in uh, in showbiz? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wait till I get there and see. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, okay, you know, I'm diabetic, so I'm I'm one of the high risk people. So I've got I can't be too smug about it. You know, I'm in a very good situation no. here, but. Yeah, you look in very good health, Brian. So I am going to take this opportunity to invite you um, next year when all this is behind us, and hopefully you have another president in America and whoever knows what's happening here, to come to the NFT, to the BFI South Bank, and we will do a celebration of 60 years of, uh, of, of Brian Cox's uh, theatrical and cinematic career. Oh. And I would like to invite you to do that now because I think it's going to be great. Okay. I mean, it'll go on for hours. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, it's just... It would be like four days or something, but please, you know, come, okay. come, and, come and let's do it. Let's do a sort of proper celebration. Oh, of right, it, yeah? That's great, Mark. Thank you so much. My thanks to Brian Cox and Salvador Simo. If you want to see video versions of those interviews, albeit in cut-down forms, then go to YouTube, search for the BFI channel, or just search MK3D. If you've enjoyed this podcast and other Comedon Film podcasts, then remember to subscribe and tell your friends. Also, check out our Patreon page, where there's loads of extras, including exclusive video content. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 